Romans chapter 3. Over the past weeks, we have been making our way through the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And we began by, uh, be, uh, really by uh, ascending uh, the, the soaring heights of God who graciously speaks to His people and then preserves that word throughout generations so that way His people may be sustained by His word as well as be transformed by it. We saw how this glorious God is one God who exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we saw the power and the honor the grace and the love of this God who not only fellowships in perfect unity amongst Himself throughout all of eternity, but also chooses to create and even when we rebel to, to come and to die for us that we might be saved and share in His glory. And if we allow ourselves as God's image bearers, as we saw last week, as we allow ourselves to go to God's Word and behold this God that we find there, And if we allow ourselves to believe in Him, to believe that He is who He says He is, to believe that He is who He says He is because of not only what He says, but because of what He has done, not least of which in the cross of Christ, then surely we will find ourselves stepping back breathless and in awe of Him, wanting nothing more than to love and to worship this God that we are shown. Unfortunately, as... An entire race of beings as humanity, as well as with ourselves as individuals, we have largely failed to have that response to God. That failure, that rebellion, the Bible calls sin. And the reality is that our sin has done nothing but undermine all that God is and all that He has sought to do in this world. The reality that we need to come to terms with this morning is this biblical doctrine of sin. And in order to do that, we want to look to Romans chapter 3. Specifically, we are going to look at verses 9 through uh, 20. Next week, we are going to look at God's solution to the problem of sin, the doctrine of sin, in verses 21 through 26. And frankly, as I was writing... Uh, this this week's message as I was preparing for it, it was very tempting just to just to break out into verses 21 through 26 and to to quickly show uh, the amazing way in which God has dealt with the problem of sin. Nevertheless, those verses deserve their own sermon uh, and our full attention next week. So this morning, as we focus on the problem, uh, we want to have. Uh, Frankly, our consciences pricked. We want to have our souls exposed. And before we can truly grasp the grace that will be seen in verses 21 through 26, we really do need to feel the weight, the horror and the shame of verses 9 through 20, the horror and the shame of our own lives as sinful people. So I want you to follow along as I read from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of God to us this morning. From this text, we want to see three central truths about sin that we need to know, we need to feel, we need to understand this morning. First, we need to see that sin condemns everyone before God. Sin condemns everyone before God. At various times over the years, as I have heard people talk about the book of Romans, one of the things that invariably uh, I I hear is that, you know, Romans is Paul's uh, theological treatise on the gospel and on all things related to the gospel. And I certainly want to acknowledge that uh, there is a lot of theology in the letter of Romans. Uh, Nevertheless, there's lots of theology in all of Paul's letters. Furthermore, Paul is not one just to write theology for the sake of theology. He is writing to specific people at a specific time for very specific reasons. There is a situation going on in Rome to which he is writing. And as you begin to to read through the entirety of the book, particularly uh, the, the first 11 chapters or so, what you will find is that there is a problem between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. There is a problem in terms of their being able to coexist together as one church, to live in harmony as one people of God. So one of the things that Paul does is he begins the letter in these first uh, three chapters really by trying to lay out the situation, as it were, uh, between these two groups of Christians, Jews and Gentiles. He wants to not only show their commonality in Christ, but also their commonality in sin. Paul says, remember, before you came to Christ, all of you were in the same predicament. All of you were captive under sin. And if you notice, as we read, Paul says, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul is saying, what I'm about to tell you now is what I've already told you in the last few chapters. And in fact, this passage uh, is very much a climax in terms of Paul's argument, beginning all the way back at chapter 1, verse 18, that all people are condemned under sin. There is not a person who has ever lived, Jew or Gentile. And for those of you that don't know, Gentile simply means non-Jew. So all of humanity is sinful. He has been laying out this spiritual history of the Jewish people as well as all of mankind and he has reached this conclusion. Everyone is a sinner. But of course that begs the question, well, what about God's special people? What about the Jewish people? They were in fact, as we see throughout many of Paul's letters, prone to believe that they had an end with God because they had been the recipient of his covenant promises. They were God's covenant people with God's law. God had revealed himself to them and they believed that gave them a certain advantage over the Gentiles, over the rest of the world. But notice what Paul says in verse 9. He's making this this argument and in fact in verses 1 through 8 he has specifically talked about certain advantages that the Jews had. And yet he pauses and and wants to, to refocus them on the point he has been making. He says, what then? Are the Jews better off? No, not at all. Yes, there is a certain advantage to being the recipients of God's gracious covenant. But when it comes to the ultimate issue of sin itself, when it comes to their fundamental standing before a holy God, it gives them no advantage. 
For they are a sinful people, both corporately and individually, and they are responsible before God for their sins, both corporately and individually. So much so that they are on equal footing then, even with the pagan Gentile who has never even heard of the one true God. And so he can say again, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. As we think about the the way in which Paul is arguing here, when he is uh, seeking to to not only uh, uh, humble both the Gentiles and the, the Jews, the Greeks and the Jews in the Roman church, he is wanting to specifically show that the law is of no benefit in terms of our saving standing before God now in this new covenant in Christ. And one of the things that we have to think about as people, particularly those of us who have been raised in the church, who we come from a line of godly parentage, we need to be reminded of this very thing for ourselves. Because the tendency for us is to begin to think like the Jews and, and to begin to believe that somehow we have an end with God because we have been raised and come from a line of people who have known God. We look back to parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and believe, well, I've always been a Christian. I've always been part of God's people. God is going to look more favorably on me than He will those that have never heard, who have never been exposed to the gospel. Perhaps like the Sharan people of India or the Rajput people of Pakistan. And yet Paul cuts through all of that here to us, just as he did with the Jews, and he says, no, it is of no advantage to you. Because you as an individual are still a sinner. And you as an individual are still a counsel before a holy God. Therefore, in many ways, there is a certain amount of benefit. There is a certain amount of grace. There is a certain advantage to being raised in the context of Christianity. To being raised even in a country where Christianity is, 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 is part of the very fabric of our culture. Even if it's not understood and it's despised, it's still acceptable in many ways. We're here, aren't we? And yet at the same time, when it comes to our ultimate standing before God, when it comes to that dealing with the issue of sin in our lives, it is of no advantage. Paul says. Of course, the larger question that hangs above this statement that all are under sin is, why is this true? How did this happen? Why is it that all people are under sin? Paul actually explains it more fully two chapters over in Romans 5, and there he is clear. He says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and we saw the creation of all things by the word of God and we saw that all things were good. And we hinted at that if, 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 you were to, if we were to read on we would see as Paul explains here that the reason why things are not still very good is because of sin that we brought into this world and God's curse upon that sin. If we were to look at Genesis 3, a passage many of you are familiar with, we would see the, the, the first two human beings... openly rebelling against the God who had created them. Openly defying Him, saying, we will not trust you in your word. We will not believe that you are the good God that you say you are, the good God that you have demonstrated yourself to be. We believe we know better. We believe that we are wiser than you. We believe that we are more good than you are. And the result, of course, of that sin was more sin brought into all of creation and even God's curse upon it. And Paul says, spiritually, 
mysteriously in God's mind. Just as Adam and Eve sinned, so also we sinned. We were there with them. Just as Adam was the first man to sin, he was also the first man. And we are all of his descendants. And so spiritually he stood as our representative before God. The representative of all humanity that would come from him. And we are united in him. And because he has sinned and counted guilty as a sinner, therefore we also are counted guilty as sinners. You know, when you think about this, one of the things that I find interesting is that when you're watching a football game and a player has the, uh, the opportunity to score and he makes the run into the end zone, uh, one of the things that you see is not just kind of a, a humble throwing of the ball to the referee, do you? What you see is, is partying on the end zone. You, you see dancing and shouting and leaping. You see a man standing back very often doing this number, wanting to receive more and more of the hero worship that is freely given to him by his fans reading him on. Now, that's not actually what I find interesting. That's commonplace. What I find interesting is the contrast between American football and what the rest of the world calls football that we call soccer. And in fact, because of the the higher difficulty in scoring points, there is a sense in which the celebration is even more joyous. It is more exciting when your team scores a goal. But the one thing you will not see most often is someone showboating. In fact, the best of the players will grab the team patch and they will hold it up to the crowd as the crowd cheers. And I heard an American uh, commentator one time during the World Cup ask uh, David Beckham, a very famous soccer player, why do you do that? Why is it when you have scored the winning goal that you hold the team patch up? And he says this, I may have been the one whose foot kicked the ball into the goal, but it has been a team effort to get the ball to that point. He says, I have not scored the point. The team has scored the point. We all deserve the glory for that goal. And it's a sad reversal of such a notion. The Bible says that when Adam sinned, we were there with him. Spiritually, we were united with him so that, well, we all share in his guilt and in his condemnation for sin. When he fell, we fell. Because he sinned and now we've all sinned. Not just in guilt before God, but now we are actually born sinners with sinful hearts. And so we actually commit sins of our own as well. There is an actual corruption that takes place in our lives. So that we're not just counted as sinners in Adam, but we are Sinners ourselves. And all of that is made evident to us from at the earliest ages. We take every opportunity given to us to sin. And in fact, all of us repeat Adam's first sin by rebelling against our parents, even as Adam, figuratively speaking, rebelled against his parent, God. We don't believe that what they tell us is right. About, we, don't, we don't believe what they tell us about right and wrong. We seek to make our own way in the world whether it's in terrible twos or even more terrible teens, we rebel just like our first parents did. And Paul is clear that all humanity, every single person, because of that first sin, is now born with a sinful nature and thus condemned as a sinner. We sin. We are not counted sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are at our very essence sinners. We have an inherent sinfulness that is evidenced by sinful behavior well it's not real encouraging news is it and frankly it doesn't get better either the second thing that we see and it's not surprising given that we're all condemned under sin is that this sin corrupts every part of our lives 
Sin corrupts every part of our lives. What does sin look like? What is the nature of sin? How does it affect us? Look again at what Paul says. He is mining the Old Testament, quoting verse after verse. He says, No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. These verses help us to see the very nature, not only of sin, but of our total corruption. And that, first of all, we see the pervasiveness of sin. We see the pervasiveness of sin. Did you notice the kind of verses that Paul quotes here? What do virtually all of them have to do with? They're all parts of the body, right? He talks about throats and tongues and lips and mouths spewing forth hate and deception. He talks about feet running towards sin and eyes looking away from God to other things. Why is he doing this? I think Paul is wanting us to grasp that there is not just part of us that is sinful, there is all of us that is sinful. Paul is wanting to emphasize the totality of who we are and having been affected by sin, all of our, all of our being, from our desires and our loves to the way we think and reason and live, has been corrupted by sin. Now, some will not go that far. Some will, some will say that there is a part of us that, have been, that has been unaffected by the fall and that given the right, presented with the right information the right way, we can make wise and godly choices and in fact even turn to God apart from His enabling. Well, there's a problem with that, isn't it? What does Paul say in verse 11? No one understands. What does he mean by that? Well, among other things, he is saying even our minds have been tainted by sin. You are not able to stand coolly and calmly and objectively like some kind of moral Sherlock Holmes and make decisions rationally about what is good and and, and evil, right and wrong. You cannot do that because you have been affected by your sinful nature. You have been corrupted by the fall. And therefore, even your ability to reason and think and understand has been tainted. Case in point. You're sitting in a sermon. You're sitting in a Sunday school lesson. You're having a conversation with a person. And it becomes apparent that some belief you have held, some action that you have done, you begin to feel conviction for sin. What do you do? Your so-called impartial mind begins to rationalize your sin away. You begin to, to work out convoluted and twisted logic to make excuses for your sin instead of seeing it for what it is. Someone has said we become the most irrational when we are confronted with our sinful behavior. And Paul is saying the same thing here. No one understands from our physical frame to our souls to our minds. We have been corrupted to our very core. Lots of the theologians talk about humanity's total depravity or radical depravity. And again, some people have said, well, that's just not true. Well, why not? Well, because they think by saying that we are totally depraved, that that means that we are as bad as we could be. Well, that's not what the theologians are saying. That's not what the Bible says. I mean, we know people who aren't even Christians, and they do some pretty good things, don't they? I mean, we only have to think of uh, the whole reason why we have this, this uh, three-day weekend 
this time of the year every year. There have been men and women who have not even under compulsion of a draft, but willingly enlisted in armed services during times of war and conflict for the very purpose of defending people they do not know. Defending a piece of paper and its truths that they have never seen. That There's a part of that that's very good, isn't it? Very moral. There, there are people we know that are just by nature more caring, the way their personality is bent, more loving. And yet what the Bible says is that both through our, uh, our, the way in which we've been raised and the conditions in which we find ourselves, even our personality because of our genes, uh, we, God has restrained sin in our lives at various times and in various ways. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we are uncorrupted by sin, even in that goodness. For what we can see on the surface, God sees on the inside. When he looks at the heart of man, even when he is at his best, God sees a sinner. He sees those whose very best attempts at being good are still tainted by sin. If by nothing else from the fact that the good that we have done, we have not done, and thankfulness and honor to the glory of God. We are pervasively sinful, but more than that, we not only see the pervasiveness of our sin, we also see the destructiveness of our sin. The destructiveness of our sin. Did you notice that as he's describing the sinfulness of humanity, he's also describing this in relational terms? Instead of speaking truth and blessings and words that build up, humanity speaks lies and curses and hatefulness. You've got to have another person listening in order to be able to, to do those things. Instead of displaying love for others, we are quick to what? Shed blood, cause pain and misery. Instead of peace, there is conflict. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that our sin is clearly seen in how we interact with one another and how we fail to do so in a godly way. Now let's be clear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is this. If it was just me on an island, I wouldn't be sinful. Now don't walk away and think that because that's not what I'm saying. And in fact, as we'll see in just a minute, that the very opposite of that is true. What I'm saying is this, and I think what Paul is getting at is that our sin is most evidently and obviously seen in, as we interact with other people. Why do nations rage in war? Why do marriages break apart? Why do friends come to blows on the playground? It's because sin destroys relationships. And we can see that from the very beginning. Again, we look to Genesis chapter 3. Humanity is confronted with their sin, and what do they do? It's not my fault, God. It's that wife you gave me. She did it. She's the one that's responsible. So God looks at the, looks at the woman. What do you have to say about that? Well, it wasn't my fault, God. It was, it was your fault because you created that snake. He's the one that tempted us. Immediately, the relationships are damaged. They're destroyed. They're defaced. Sin destroys relationships, and that is no more clearly seen than in the ultimate relationship that we have with God. And this is the last thing that we want to see under the second point, and that is the ungodliness of sin. The ungodliness of sin. The conflict that we see between people is simply an echo of the larger, more foundational conflict sinful humanity has with God. In fact, it's here that we're getting at the very root of our sin. Paul ends his description of sinful humanity similar to how he began it, by speaking of our rebellion against God. No one seeks God, he says, because in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is, in the end, the root of our sin. You know, when we think about really bad sins, when things that are repugnant to us, what are, what, what, are the, what are the sins that we most often 
announce. It's sins that involve one person hurting another people, person, right? We think of murder. We think of abuse. We think of so many things. It's always people harming people. But is that what raises God's ire the most in Scripture? I mean, I, 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 know, it's a, I know it's asking a lot on, on, on this hour or Sunday morning, but if you will draw your minds back a couple weeks, a couple months, what is the one sin that God hammered over and over and over again to His people? It was idolatry. Do you remember? Throughout the Scriptures, there is this, there is this massive call that idolatry is disgusting to God. He hates it. He despises it. He likens it to adultery. It is such a violation of all things. Why is that the case? Because as D.A. Carson says, this is what sin is all about. The de-godding of God. The de-godding of God. At the deepest level, sin is about rejecting God as God. We don't like Him as God. We want to make our own gods. Or worse yet, we worship ourselves as God. Isn't that what we saw in the garden? Isn't it the very temptations that the devil brings to Jesus in the, in the wilderness? Aren't that the very things that we face in our own life as well? The greatest sins that we commit are ones in which we reject when God has clearly said, this is who I am, and therefore this is how you will live in light of me. Likewise, in the passage we read earlier, Psalm 51, David has committed adultery, he has committed murder, he has provided poor leadership for an entire nation, he has sinned against virtually everybody. You'd be hard-pressed to find a person Israel David had not sinned against. And yet, what does he pray in verse 4? Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why? Because all of our sin, whether it's embezzling money or getting drunk or not loving your spouse or bowing down to an idol in a pagan temple somewhere, whether it's hating another person, watching porn, disrespecting a parent, or punching out a dude who got lippy with you at the post office, whatever the sin is, it is ultimately and finally a sin against God. It's an affront to Him. And the result is nothing but the experience of His just and righteous wrath poured out on our lives. We sin against the one perfect morally pure being in the universe. The only one who made us and deserves our worship. Therefore, the punishment must be fitting of the crime. And the only punishment fitting for, re- for rejecting the sovereign authority, the moral integrity, and the merciful provision of God is an eternity of torment and hell. That's what scriptures teach. That's what makes sin so vile, and that's what makes hell so frightening. So when we stand back and we think about sin, the definition offered by Cornelius Planting that fits well, listen to this. The Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness, expressed in an array of images. Sin is the missing of a target, a wandering from the path, a strain from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These other images suggest deviance. Even when it is familiar, sin is never normal. Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relationship to God. Friends, this is the 
This is the shocking, sad, even depressing reality of who we are in relationship to the God of the universe. To the one who is all sovereign over all things. And it is a wretched state. For lastly, sin keeps everyone from earning forgiveness. Sin keeps everyone from earning forgiveness. If we follow Paul's explanation of sin and see its deadly effects in our life, we see the fatal reality that awaits us. We have been separated from God and can only await His judgment. And yet, at our best, we may want to repair the breach. There may be a part of us that says, I, I know that I've sinned and I want to do something to make up for it. When we, when we sin against someone, when we fail to do something for them, what's the first thing we say? I'll make it up to you, right? Isn't that what we say? Or am I the only husband here who's a, who's a failure sometimes? Okay, I'm sorry, honey, I'll make it up to you, I promise, right? And very often at our best, that would be our desire before God. I've sinned against you, but I'll make it up to you with my life. I will, I will do something to earn back your forgiveness. But the problem is we cannot earn God's forgiveness. Our sin is so pervasive, it is so destructive, that we can never be made right before God. And so Paul in the final verses says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And I say, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with what we just read? Well, remember, what has Paul just been doing? He's been quoting the Old Testament, has he? He's been quoting the law. He's been hammering again and again and again and again and again the vile sinfulness of humanity. And what he is saying is this. If, if that's being written to people from the law, to those under the law, then how much more those who don't have the law are all condemned in sin? So earlier he says... He, he talks about the, the, the Gentiles and how they are still responsible. In chapter 1, he says, What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Paul says you cannot make this argument that, well, it's not fair because they didn't have a chance. He says, forget that. They did have a chance. God made himself plainly and clearly known through creation. They could have sold him and sought to honor him. The problem was they said, no, thank you. We will make our own gods. We will worship our own idols. We will worship our own little figurines and massive wood pillars and things that we will claim to be God even though in our heart of hearts we know what we're simply doing is refusing to see the evidence that is before us. Once more, he says, you, my brothers and sisters, according to the flesh, you Jews, you may think you're actually better off, that you may actually be able to earn forgiveness because you have the law of God, but you are mistaken. From our own law, from the word that we have from God, no one is righteous, not even those who are under the law. Why? Because the law can't make you righteous. If you were able to, if, if Paul or another Jew would be able to actually keep the law point by point, measure by measure, fine, you've won your righteousness. The problem is, that's not what the law does. Because we're sinners by heart, and the law can't change that. So what does it wind up doing? It points out your sin. You know this even in a, in a non-biblical sense. You're cruising down the highway, heading on vacation. 
and you have a reminder of the law. Speed limit, 65 miles an hour. What do you do? You look down and you realize you're a sinner. You're a lawbreaker because you're going 75, trying to make time, right? Likewise for Israel. All the law did was point out their sin to them. This is another way that you failed. And this is another way that you failed. And this is another way that you failed. This is why the sacrifices had to be built into the law because no one could keep it. There is none righteous, no, not one. And if even those who have the law have their mouths stopped, how much more will everyone in the entire world have no excuse on the day of judgment? There is no way that we can fix the problem of sin before our lives. That's what we want to do though, isn't it? We want to fix our own problems. Most of us, some of us actually, probably these days a greater number, want someone else to fix our problems for us. We see the problem in our life and we want to blame someone else. We want to be a victim of a low self-esteem or the way in which we were brought up or the lack of help we've been given by society and government. We can't fix the problem so we think we can shift it off to somebody else and ignore it. But Paul says, you are the problem. You are the problem. Because by very nature, you are a sinner. And therefore, you stand condemned by God with no way to earn righteousness before Him. All that your even best works can do is earn you death, he says in Romans chapter 6. This is the the stark reality of our life before God. But this is is the the beauty then of Romans 3, 21 through 26. Because there, Paul will tell us, you don't have to fix your problem with God. You don't have to work at repairing the breach because God has already done the heavy lifting. He has already repaired the breach. He has already sent His Son, His perfect Son, His one and only Son, to do what you could not do, earn righteousness before God. Not that He needed it for Himself, but He did it for His people. For those that would turn away from their sins and trust in Him as their Savior and not trust in themselves More than that, this perfect Savior not only provided His people with righteousness so that they could stand before God, but He also bore them the judgment that is coming upon them that they deserve for their sins. Thus, in every way, it is Christ alone who makes it possible for the problem of our sin to be remedied. It is He and He alone who allows us to be made right with God. Thus, for those of us who actually trust in Christ as our Savior, for those of us who throw our lives upon Him, making Him the cornerstone of it, then we can sing of Christ as the old hymn writer did. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from my wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me whole. Not the labors of my hands can, can, can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Therefore nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. In MacArthur's commentary on Romans talks about a story that actually made national headlines out of Vancouver several, several years ago. And it was about, frankly, this stupid little duck that was 
amidst a whole flock of other ducks in a public square. And yet this duck was stupid enough to put his head in a, in a plastic ring that a pop can came off or something and it wrapped around his, his bill and he couldn't open his mouth to eat. And someone saw this duck like this and went to uh, try and lure it over with so, some bread so it could come over and pop the ring off and save the duck's life because like anything, if it doesn't eat, it's going to die. And it wouldn't come. It kept running away. And so this became something of a, a, a local competition. Save the duck, save the duck. And so people would try. They would intentionally come on their lunch break trying to save this duck to lure it in some way so they could grab it and pull the ring off so they could eat and survive. They even brought in uh, animal control who tried this. They brought in a, the national champion duck collar to try and lure it in. And every single time it would run away in fear. And frankly, the story ends and no one ever actually knows what happened to the duck, if it actually managed to get the ring off or if it died in its stupidity and fear. And friends, there may be some of you here this morning. I know there are people out there. And God is yelling with a megaphone. You are perishing. You have a sickness called sin that is worse than any disease running through your veins and it is so pervasive, so deadly, you will never be able to concoct a remedy for it. But I can save you from your sins. I can redeem you. I can pull your life out of the pit and save you. And yet we run from God in fear. We run from our sin in fear. Yet God all the while says, come to me and I will save you. This morning, if you have never come to Jesus for the cure of your sin sickness, now is the time to do it. Do not wait a moment longer. Look to him who provides the double cure. Trust him and him alone as your savior. And for those of us that have, for those of us this morning who have saw this depravity, not just of someone out there, but of ourselves, when we read through Romans 3, it's not just them. It is me. It is John who is not righteous. It is John who does not understand. It is John who does not seek after God. It is John who has turned aside together and has become worthless and does not good, who does nothing good. It is John whose throat is an open grave, whose tongue is used to deceive, who has the venom of asps under his lips, whose mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's John whose feet are swift to shed blood. It's in his path that are ruin and and misery and the way of peace that he has not known for there is no fear of God before his eyes and yet Christ has died to redeem my life from that for those of you who have trusted in that as well the, the only fitting response is in thankfulness and love is to give your life over in worship to the God who saved you and the most fundamental way to bring Him worship, to exalt His name, to magnify the God of your salvation, is to tell people that it has happened. When I became engaged to my wife, I could not keep it a secret. Why? Because I had done something significant? No, because she had said yes. And if you truly love the God who looked at you and said, yes, come to me, you who are weak and heavy labored, and I will give you rest. If you rejoice in the God who said, yes, come to me, filthy sinner, and I will make you clean. And the way to exalt him, the way to show your love for him, is to tell others that he has done that and that they can hear the same. And the great song of our life should be nothing 
in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Father, we rejoice this morning because of the salvation that we have in Christ. Father, it is so easy for us week after week gathering together to worship to take for granted that salvation, that gift that you did not need to give to us. But Father, when we stare into the depths of our sinful hearts, when we see the reality of our depravity, the total corruption that overtakes us even from birth, God, then your grace becomes all the sweeter to us. So, Father, I pray that as we are about to sing of your grace that is greater than all our sins, that, God, you will break our hearts in thankfulness and joy to you who has saved our lives. Father, we pray that that joy, that brokenness and grace and mercy would lead, God, to a life of joyful, loving obedience and witness before you. We pray all this in Jesus' name as the one who lived and died and ever lives again for us. Amen.